Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, we're exploring the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Sam Stern, Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss culture as a major shaping force of companies in today's climate. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, I'll start off with kind of a stark reality, which is culture has been on the docket as a priority for a number of years now. And some of the the tenets of culture really haven't changed much. Right. So one can look at that and say it's not working as well as people might think because the same sort of beginner logic is in place. What is the state of culture in today's companies? Yeah. So um, culture change is hard. And so part of the stark reality that you're seeing, and I think you're seeing it correctly, is that um, if you want to change a culture, which is in an organization or societal level, but we'll stick to, to companies, right? Uh, you're talking about changing behaviors of uh, every individual in the organization. And so behavior change at scale is something that takes uh, at least five years. And that comes that number comes from uh, us studying successful culture transformations, of which there are only a handful, as you're implying, um, and seeing that it was at least five years, often with many false starts, and a lot of companies do not persist on the path after one of those false starts or diversions. So there's a lot of off-ramps to culture transformations. There's a lot of time to have to stay with it. And so a lot of companies um, give it up before they get there. Change in leadership takes them in a new direction. Or they uh, declare victory well before they've actually changed the culture. And that's, I think, one of the, those are encapsulating a lot of the challenges companies face with culture change. Yeah, because certainly one of the realities of strategic planning is strategic planning cycles used to be five years. Right. And then the logic was it's three years because the world keeps on changing faster. Now the logic is three years is, is silly right? because you have to have sort of 18-month repeated cycles of, of strategic change. And you bring up five years, it seems out of pace with that fast climate. Yeah, it, it is. And this is one of the um, tension points between culture and between other strategic priorities organizations have on their agenda. I think most of the uh, podcast episodes for what it means, you're sitting talking to guests about things that are moving really quickly. This is not one of them. Culture is the slowest moving part of an organization. And it is in tension with those really fast moving parts, right? New technology coming in and getting adopted, business model changing, acquisitions, you know, changing your points of emphasis in, in your business. Culture will resist a lot of that change. And push back against it and feel like the thing that is holding you back from moving faster against those elements. And there's truth to that. Um, but culture is also the thing that keeps you sort of having this, this sort of middle, this part, who you are as an organization, what sustains you, what defines you. And as often uh, culture change is about hearkening back to founding principles of an organization and reinvigorating those with real meaning and modernizing them. So there is that tension between wanting to move faster, having to move faster as you respond to other changes, and not being able to move faster with the culture change and companies getting frustrated by the slow pace of change relative to what the other things they're doing. Yeah. But how do leaders rationalize that tension? Yeah. I've been saying this a lot lately to clients. You have to live with certain tensions, not trying to resolve them always. And so it's not – you're not – wrong to say that we need to move fast mm -hmm. in adopting new technologies and responding to changing consumer demands, while also saying we're going to move as fast as we can with culture change, but it's going to move slower and we need to allow for a longer time horizon. And I think that concept of the longer time horizon is one that companies would be smart to look at anyway, because a lot of the 
you know, you take someone like Amazon, who is disrupting almost every market in that exists, they're doing that by adopting a longer time horizon about how they make bets. And so culture could be one of those big bets that we say, we know this isn't going to pay off in the short term. But as we are working on the shorter term bets with faster turnaround time, we're also working on the culture change. And it's a longer bet that will actually differentiate us once we get there because so few companies are able to see out a five-year commitment to something. So you brought up the other podcasts we've run. One of the common threads of those podcasts is that we talk about things that people ultimately can control. Yeah. They can design and build experiences that that are theirs. They can design and, and use technologies that are put in a stack. And human beings are hard to control, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. And I think, is that part of the puzzle here? Because culture is not something that's easy to control. Yeah. yeah. So again, here, here we'll come up with another tension. Um, there will be a lot of consistency or a lot of common elements in what behaviors, what things need to change to change the culture. But each individual is going to want to feel like they're making their own changes for their own reasons. And so you do want it to feel, you know, this personalization down to the individual employee level. And yet the good news for companies, the only way this is doable is that a lot of what each individual is committing to and doing, their peers are doing very similar things as well. And at first blush, as you speak with clients, Sometimes culture is first pitched as an organizational thing. We're going to change the organism. Right. Or they will might change some teams. Yeah. How often do they understand that you're really talking about true mass customization? Well, hopefully, if I'm doing my job right, after they talk to me, they understand that. Um, I do see companies wanting to come in and do a, you know, one training for everyone. A big bang. Yeah. One new performance metric that will incent them to do the right thing by the customer for everyone. And what I say is, here's the good news. The good news is you don't need to know what the right thing is going to be for everyone. You need to create sort of an environment in the conditions where people are discovering it for themselves. They're making their own connections to the purpose of the company and their contributions to it that feel personally inspiring to each of those individuals. And then you can start to collect their stories and their examples and their behaviors And start to net that out into maybe something that is a little bit more programmatic, systematic, that can start to point you to consistent training that you would roll out, can point you to consistent performance evaluation you would do. But it comes from the individual examples and builds up from there. And then those individuals, when they see that training and that performance evaluation criteria, can recognize their own stories, their own behaviors in it. So going back to one of the things you you had mentioned about making the change your own and having sort of that personal connection yeah. to to this culture change and the direction of the, com- of the company, right? Yeah. But frequently change is seen as a stick, and we talked about this before we started recording, yeah. right? So that's, a again, another tension that leaders have to deal with. And if they are on board and they are five steps ahead of the yeah. rest of the organization, I assume that's also part of the issue. Absolutely. One of the biggest failure points for culture change is leaders getting frustrated with the slow pace of change or the perceived slow pace of change they see from the people behind them. Because they were the first ones, if it's, first of all, they have to be the first ones to commit to this. It has to be leader led. And so if it's being done in the right order and they are the first ones, they're usually way ahead of the pack and getting frustrated because they've been on this path for a while. One of my favorite examples of the patience required here is Popeye's fried chicken. Their uh, former CEO, a woman named Cheryl Batchelder, spent 18 months with her executive team only, getting them committed 
to the purpose of the organization. She knew she needed all those leaders on board fully committed before they could take it out to anyone else and have it feel authentic and have it feel like something that all the leaders were leading from the front on. And two of her leaders had to go because they just couldn't get with the program on that. But she felt that that was 18 months of hard work, but that was well spent because it allowed them to go much faster after they had finished that, that upfront work. You made a prior comment about in, in the beginning parts of culture, the the employees will teach you how to yeah. affect cultural change, right? Is that a well-known methodology or is, or are people sort of moving more towards sort of the old B.F. Skinner, which is I will change your, your behaviors or else kind of thing? Yeah, people are definitely moving away from that sort of change. You know, the beatings will continue until the change is implemented to, to torture an, an old uh, cliche um, to the idea of, I, I think I would I would use another sort of old uh, cliche, which is you know sort of the the uh, Prairie Home Companion Lake Will Be Gone effect, where everyone is above average. Thank every, you. Every, every employee thinks that they're above average when it comes to being customer centric, and they think if if I'm not truly acting in a customer centric way, I'm at least trying to. And if I'm not trying to as much as I know I should be, it's because you company have demoralized me, have made me quit on this effort, right? Because you've made it so hard for me to know what the right thing to do for the customer is. My goals don't incent me to do it. My colleagues seem to have tuned out, so why would I even bother? So what that tells you is you cannot go to them with a message of change of improve or there will be hell to pay, but rather a we're going to go and identify the areas, the opportunities, the um, instances where you do perform in a customer-centric way, and we're going to start to recognize you, and we're going to start to um, highlight that, to raise it up in the consciousness of those individuals, to provide a model to your peers, and start collecting that evidence to build back, as, as I was saying before, the training and the performance evaluation. In your prior answer, you talked about the person who may see change as a stick. Yeah. And everyone thinks themselves above average. Right. And you can imagine that change is often perceived as, I've done something wrong. Something, something bad has happened or will happen. It's played from a negative platform. Yeah. But there's actually three scenarios, at least three scenarios. One is you have a successful company constantly adapting to the marketplace and they're playing from a position of strength. That's the minority where companies choose to change while they're being successful. Mm-hmm. There's companies that sense sort of clouds coming and yeah. they change because they can predict that they're going to have to move. Yeah. Then there's companies that just panic. They see something <laughs> happening or leadership change or something's happened in the marketplace, something has been disrupted. Yeah. And I suspect that in all three scenarios, even the first one where positive, people might see that as, well, something bad has happened. I have been bad. Yeah. Therefore, I'm being told to change. Yeah. How much you see the culture being catalyzed based upon, hey, we're good. We're just going to make the next big step because we're good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think you want to try and tell that type of a story. I, I think... Um, I hear all the time from, from our clients, they say, man, I wish we're okay. We're not great, but we're not terrible. I wish we had a burning platform. And I'd say, no, you don't. You wish you were great. And so you were making this change out of choice and from a position of strength. Because right. um, panic does not typically breed good decisions. Right. And mm-hmm. um, it often is, is a, a, an opening, an excuse for everyone's pet project to be thrown onto that bonfire of insanity. Less strategic right? in a way, right? If you're doing it out of panic or fear. That's right. Yeah. And like, give me your urgent. And so 
culture change, by the way, as I've said, it takes five years or longer. That's not a um, response to an urgent pressing problem, right? That's, are you, it's like, are you kidding? We don't have time for that right now. Whereas if we're saying, okay, we are doing this from, from a position of strength, so we probably actually have still a lead over our competitors or we have some room to do this. And some room to fail and learn and yeah. we have some space. And even in that second scenario where we see the clouds coming, we're going to respond to them before we're getting rained on here. Um, that's a real opportunity. And so I do encourage companies to say, look, we're doing this because we know it's the right thing to do and we're, we're always trying to stay one step ahead. And honestly, again, back to that sort of everyone thinks they're above average, that appeals to people's self-image, self-interest and wanting to work for a, a progressive firm, wanting to work at a place that is, you know, doing things in that kind of a proactive way. So Sam, you mentioned Popeyes and you mentioned the 18-month period where the CEO spent time with the executives. And it just struck me that there's this incongruity with a five-year plan, which is, I mean, you do have a 10-year issue. The leadership turnover will happen within that five-year span. So do you have this sense of disbelief that's saying, listen, I'm not going to be here in five years. Why would I Mm. put that boat in the water for that long a time? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I I sit there and and say this to executives who won't be there six months later, won't be there next year, and cannot, cannot with a straight face commit to saying, yes, I personally, CEO, or other senior leader will see this out because they have no idea. They can't make that statement and have it be a true statement at the time they're making it. They don't know. And I do think that's a huge, huge barrier and a huge reason why so many of these changes fail. Uh, Leadership disruption. Almost always when a new leader comes in, um, they have to pivot away from the strategy of the former leader. I mean, it is part of why we're changing leadership to go in a different direction, right? And leaders are... A, to me, as yet, as I can see, an unavoidable point of fragility for organizations who want to change their culture because so much of it is leader dependent and leaders are not likely to be around. So it's absolutely a major failure point and I don't have a great answer for you other than to say it doesn't mean you shouldn't start down the path because I have seen some companies successfully ride out leadership reshuffles, reorgs to still change their culture. So coming off of that response, is there an example that you can share of an organization who has survived through leadership change and successfully changed their culture? Yeah, sure. Um, A couple of examples come to mind um, with different levels or different flavors of leadership change. And one of my favorite stories to talk about as a successful transformation is Cleveland Clinic. Um, They went from last in their peer group of major research universities, think of Johns Hopkins, Mass General, places like that, to first in terms of patient experience. And that was the metric they used to judge their transformation. And I love they had a really great why that crystallized why they were doing this. They said, for us to truly continue to think of ourselves as healthcare delivery experts, leaders in the world, we need to include patient experience in that calculation. And they started out on that journey with a high profile from the outside chief experience officer who they brought in to lead this change. She was gone in 18 months, and that was the disruption. All she had to show for it, and this is a little unfair to her, and she's a very smart, brilliant woman, but all she had to show for it was redesigned uh, hospital gowns because she was not substantively attacking the culture, the problem at the organization. So who did they replace her with? They replaced her with someone who had no patient experience knowledge or expertise in any way. He was a practicing surgeon at the hospital. And that was intentional. They brought him in because they knew he would be seen as someone who understood and got the culture of the hospital, what it was like to work at the hospital. He would have street cred. Exactly. He had street cred. And his first 
role, his first job, as he saw it and as his boss, the CEO, told him, (laughs) they agreed at least, was go talk to the head of nurses and get her on board with this transformation because we don't do anything at this hospital unless nurses agree that it's the right thing to do. And so that was where he went and spent not 18 months like uh, Cheryl Batchelder at, uh, at Popeye's, but a significant time getting her on board with this direction and figuring out what could we do to better support nurses to deliver better patient experiences. And that was where they spent a big chunk of their time. And so their transformation took six or seven years, the first 18 months of which you could almost throw out, and they almost do in the telling of their story. When Jim Merlino got there, it's like, hey, and now we're really, we're moving. But there was that sort of whole pre-story of that false start. In that story, you very closely affiliated culture with purpose. Yeah. And it sort of does beg the question, how many of these efforts have sort of self-revealed purpose in the change? Or is all too often culture seen as optional or interesting or someone's flavor of the day? 100% of successful culture transformations have a very clear linkage between the culture change and the purpose of the organization. Uh, I, I always talk about the... Step one in your culture transformation is articulating a clear why that will feel appropriate to the organization for why we're doing this. And it has to speak to the situation we're in, how, how people at the company already think of the culture. So, it, you know, there's an affinity to Cleveland Clinic self-identifies as one of the leading hospitals in the world. You need to uh, make a convincing argument for why patient experience needs to be in that definition and perception so that people will say, oh, okay, we had been too narrow in our definition of healthcare excellence. We need to expand it to include patient experience. So there was a lot of work they did to uncover the link between better patient experience and better patient health outcomes. And every single culture transformation has that why to help you move that story along that five-year-plus trajectory. You need to keep coming back to that and have it as a shorthand that people all can point to and say, this is why we're doing this. This is so fundamental to our organization. And internalized, too. And it's not just yes. a bunch of marketing mumbo-jumbo, right? And you do hear of cultural change being centered on being customer-obsessed in our language. Yeah. But that's a general thought. Yeah. That's not specific to the nature of their very specific customer and what they're attempting to achieve. Correct. So is that one of the challenges is how do you make the purpose so specific, so visceral, yeah. that it starts to affect the way you think of your own job. And you're going back to your issue of mass customization for every yeah. employee. You start bringing that home. Yeah, absolutely. To your point, um, it needs to be more than just we want to be customer obsessed. We're, we're going to become more customer centric in our culture so we can be customer obsessed. There's, it, that gets circular and it's not relevant or specific enough to the organization. The why has to speak to... Cleveland Clinic had to make a compelling case for why doctors, nurses, and surgeons should care about something like patient experience. Um, Safe Light Autoglass had to make a compelling case for why uh, technicians replacing cracked autoglass on windshields needed to be customer-centric. That was actually an easy case to make. They actually had to make more of the case to headquarters employees of why they needed to support and enable the field technicians and why it was all about the field technicians. But it doesn't seem, I mean, that's, that's a funny example because the patient is an issue of health, life and death. There's a there's a point of misery and getting yeah. well. There, there's, there's something very human about that. Yeah. Changing on a windshield just doesn't rise to that same level. How did how yeah. did Safe Light make it so important that it gathered that kind of momentum? Yeah, great question. And um, I will challenge a little bit an assumption that was in the question, which is that there's sort of a hierarchy of purpose of different what different companies do. Because absolutely, the saving lives business, it's easy to see that 
we should care about the patients. And yet they didn't really care about patient experience, right? They were, we're saving lives. That's too, that's too, that's beneath us. So you had to get them to care. When a customer has a cracked windshield, they are stressed out. They're frustrated. They have all these negative emotions and you actually can step into the breach, safe flight technician and make their day and make it memorable and save them. Popeye's, there is emotional components to fast food uh, restaurants, to delivering that experience. There's, um, you can bring purpose. You can create higher meaning in any job. And actually, the, there's been plenty of academic studies recently that have shown that every single person down to the most sort of um, minimum wage, minimal sort of skilled job, they want to find purpose in their work. People are motivated by that. So how much of cultural change is centered on the idea that the reason a company exists is to is to deliver success or deliver great outcomes to customers versus the reason the company exists is to make money. And so purpose sometimes gets perverted into a P&L thing, yeah. which the front line doesn't understand. Yeah. I, I wouldn't hide the football in so much as I wouldn't say, wouldn't pretend that there isn't, there aren't going to be business reasons and there better be business reasons or you won't, you won't proceed on a, a five-year path, right? Um, but you do need to make it a higher order mission or purpose than just that for employees. So I'm going to take a, a negative path here for a second. And one of my heroes is Dilbert, for those old enough <laughs> to know who Dilbert was. And you mentioned that sometimes when you bring up culture, there's sort of this collective sigh or eye roll because yeah. it's sometimes sort of pointed at posters and T-shirts and yeah. slogans and things like that. Warm and fuzzies. Yeah. And then the, the other part you brought up was it's a primary purpose of the organization. There's something fundamental about it. How much is it that culture is now sort of thrown on the rocks of Dilbert, which is the executives have seen it. There's a natural cynicism and the name itself is getting culture into trouble and it goes more towards purpose, incentives and things like that. It's a cleaner run. How much is the Dilbert hangover happening here? Yeah. Well, I think Dilbert is a good corrective to the bad, the wrong path to culture change, right? And Dilbert, if that cynicism has crept in, good because, um, what it was, what it was attacking was sort of this poster checkbox perk, you know, benefit mentality of culture change, which is uh, BS. It doesn't work. That's not how people think of like you give me the foosball table in the break room and we're sorted. Uh, you give me free snacks, whatever the benefit or perk is. And your argument is that culture has to be tied into process reengineering. Has to be tied into incentives. Yeah has to be tied into the day-to-day -day reality. There has to be something tangible, explicit, and sort of not hard-nosed, but something real about it. Not It can't be, to your point, Jen, sort of the fuzzy thing that sits at the veneer of the business. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it best before taping. The whole system needs to change. Yeah, well, and, and I think this gets to how do you convince people that it is changing, that it is different? Um, and because, you know, we talked about them all thinking, everyone thinks they're above average, um, well, they want to see some evidence that everyone else who they think they're better than is making the needed changes. And so as an organization, you want to signal that through one, leaders going first, leading from the front on the culture change, and two, highlighting very specific things that you're changing about process, about metrics or goals, about rules in the organization that would have been viewed by the employees impacted by them as barriers to being more customer-centric. My favorite example of this was Hampton Inn found that top performing general managers at their hotels interacted with more guests per day than average performing general managers in terms of guest experience results at the hotel. 
the top performers were doing it at the free breakfast buffet. That was their little secret. Rather than go lecture the average performing general managers about why don't you go work at the breakfast buffet, they assumed positive intent and went to, to dive in to say, well, what are they doing during breakfast? They were back in their offices, the general managers, completing financial paperwork. Why? Because Hampton Corporate had said, send us financial paperwork first thing every day. Now they have a thing that they can change. They have guidance. They can say, we're sorry. We conflicted you between what you know to be a hospitality best practice and compliance with a corporate guideline. We're changing the guidance. Send it to us by lunchtime. At 10 a.m., every hotel is empty because everyone's checked out for the day. You can be back in your office at 10 and complete financial paperwork, but go work the breakfast buffet. So, Sam, you said something to me that was very interesting about Hampton Inn, which is there was an active effort to give the employees, in this case the GMs, the space and time to facilitate change, to act differently. Yeah. Culture shift is a very inefficient game. It it takes more time than one would like. So the executives actually freed up the space and time to do that. That that seems like a practice that's not well exposed in terms of the playbook. But it seems very much common sense and necessary for people to feel like they got something something first. And what they're going to give back is the investment to take on the change. Yeah, that's right. That's very well said. We, as individuals struggle when we're being asked to do something in addition to what we're already doing. But if you can signal to me, and if, and if it's an honest, authentic thing that you're showing me, that you're changing something that is now makes it easier for me to do the thing, new thing you're asking me to do, or you've freed up my time to do the new thing you want me to do, um, then I can do that. I can take it on because I, f- I can see the balance has been appropriate for me to take these other things off my plate or have this barrier removed that now allows me to do this new thing without feeling overwhelmed by everything I'm being asked to do. Yeah, change stops being a giving game. I'm going to give yeah. you a lot more. It's a, get, a give and get game, which is the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get time. And that's yeah. a, it's a hell of a game. That's right. And to your point, it's, it's I get as an employee and then I can give. Right. So let's start at the beginning. Culture is a major fuel for allowing companies to succeed in a market where digital transformation, disruption customer expectations are causing havoc. Yeah. And you need to orient people towards that reality in a way that's authentic to your brand, authentic to the origination of your company, that whole bit. So culture is vital, but the efforts largely have not succeeded at the pace one would want. Yes. So what does it mean to a company that's either contemplating now or recontemplating culture? What is the things they need to walk away from to say, I really need to know this part of culture shift? Because we don't want them to walk away and say, I didn't want to take this journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, Great. So I would say two things. One is leaders, go first and be patient for for the rest of the organization to follow behind you a little more slowly than you would like, but be patient. And two, and we were just talking about this, is find as many barriers, obstacles as you can and show that you're removing them to signal to employees that the change that they're waiting for to happen at the organization so that they can be as customer-centric as they already think they are, that you're making those changes, that the environment in which they're operating is changing. And so now they're going to be surrounded by more people being customer-centric and more rules and policies and support that make it easy for them to be customer-centric. Thank you, Sam. Thanks. My pleasure. 
If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.